Hey, what's up, everybody? How you doing? Are you ready like I am for fall to start? I am so ready for fall. So ready for fall. Ready to send all these knucklehead kids back to school. Uh, story is five. She goes to kindergarten this year. Pray for me, because I'm like this nervous dad parent. who's like, I'm sending my kid to school. And, um, no, actually, I'm also really happy about it. <laughs> like, go. <laughs> Grow and become an adult. Um, I love my kids. They're, they're awesome. Uh, by the way, Story is doing great in cheerleading. She's doing really good. She loves it. She's having a blast. She's not being a brat anymore. She's got great teachers, great, great coaches, and, and so she's coming home, and she's got a good attitude, and she's... she's proud of what she's doing, and she's super sweet. It's really, it's really cute, so it's amazing. Um, I am so pumped for what God is doing in our church and in our world and in, our, in this season. I believe that uh, Colossians, we've been talking about Colossians over the last couple months, if you missed this series in the Rebuild series. The book of Colossians says, let your roots grow down deep into Jesus. And I believe that a lot of times in life, what we think we want is outward growth, we want to grow in wealth. We want to grow in strength. We want to grow in our, you know, in, in our status or whatever. We think we want outward growth, but a lot of times what we really need is downward growth. We need to grow down deep into Jesus. And I think that this whole storm that we've been in for the last two years has grown some roots down deep. And I'm saddened by some people uprooting in this season, people who are uprooting in this season, but I believe that the, the, the real re thing that we should be doing is we should be digging down deeper. In fact, I would say that there's two, re two responses to our world right now. There's response number one is um, from the church is there's Christians who are saying, hey, the world is broken and it's messed up and it's twisted and they're uprooting and they're following other ideas and other concepts and Thing number two is there are people who are going, hey, our world is messed up and broken and hurting. I need to dig down deeper into God. I need to dig down deeper into Orthodox Christianity. I need to dig down deeper into the truth of the word of God. And I want our church to be a place that's digging deeper right now. I want to be the kind of church that's digging deeper, not just intellectually. I know I'm wearing my glasses, so you're like, yeah, intellectual Kyle is up there today. Not just intellectually, but spiritually, our heart, our attitude, our, I want all of us to become strong. I heard someone say recently, I'm not trying to build a big church, I'm trying to build big Christians. And I totally agree with that. Um, uh, you know, with, with my two girls, I'm not looking at, I'm not trying to build, listen y'all, I'm not trying to build a big family, okay? My wife and I, we're done. But I am trying to build a strong family. I am trying to build a healthy family. I am trying to build two healthy girls who grow up to be mature women of God. And so, and so that's what this series is about. This series is about us digging deeper into our roots. And I find that as we start digging deeper, there are people who come to church. They come to church regularly. They worship, they love, they take communion, they give, they serve, and they don't even know what Christianity is. And there's no fault on them. I'm not even mad at them for that. I think that churches have gotten away from the basics, and we need to get back to the basics. The basics are where the roots are grown. 
The early church used to say, I preach nothing except for Christ and him crucified and him risen again, right? So um, how about that? How about we come up here every single Sunday? Hey, we're in a 532-part series called Christ Crucified. What if that's what we preached every single week? That's what the early church did. They said, this is all we preach. And so I unashamedly am gonna preach at you about Christianity, what it is, what we believe as Christians, and who we are, because I believe that that's a good way for us to dig our roots deeper. Um, The world is offering all kinds of solutions to our current problems. They're offering all kinds of ideas of this could help or this could help. I'm gonna stick to the tried and true 2,000-year idea that is still working today. Christianity still works today every bit as much as it did before. And I believe that it is the answer for a crazy, messed up, broken world that we live in today. All right, before we jump into Mere Christianity, part two, I wanna invite you to be a part of a Life Co. Cruise interest meeting. Life Co. Cruise, what is Life Co. Cruise? Life Co. Cruise is a replacement for Christian life groups. It is not the same thing as what we've been doing for Christian Life groups. So maybe you're used to starting your small group and you're so excited about, I'm gonna do this group or I'm gonna do that group. We're doing something a little bit different. It's every bit as awesome in terms of building relationships and pastoring people and connecting with people, but it's a slightly different approach. And so I wanna invite you, if you've ever been a small group leader, if you're excited about a small group, you wanna lead a small group, you can spell small group, you are, <laughs> you, um, you've ever attended a small group, if you hate small groups, I don't care, come to the Life Co. Cruise interest meeting on September 2nd at 7 p.m. right here. We're gonna talk about Life Co. Cruise. Life Co. Cruise, if, you, if you're listening to this on podcast and you can't see the spelling, it's C-R-E-W-S. We are not starting a cruise line, Life Co. Cruise, with destinations like the Bahamas. Come on, how great would that be? I'm down for that. Life Co. Cruise, we're, we're about to hire a cruise director, okay? And you can be the cruise director for Life Co. Cruise. Um, I wanna recap last week. Last week, Mere Christianity, part one, book one, uh, tackles three issues. Issue number one, there is a moral law. There is objective right and wrong. And C.S. Lewis says this, I think this is so powerful. He says, so much for the present situation about remedies to the question is more difficult. For my part, I believe we ought to work not only at spreading the gospel, that certainly, but also at a certain preparation for the gospel. It is necessary to recall many to the law of nature before we talk about God. For Christ promises forgiveness of sins, but what is it to those who, since they don't believe in the law of nature or they don't know about the law of nature, uh, do not know that they have sinned? Moral relativity is the enemy that we have to overcome before we tackle atheism. I would almost dare to say, let us first make the younger generation good pagans, and afterwards, let us make them Christians. Now, what does that mean? Let's, let's make them good pagans. C.S. Lewis said that even the pagans had, even though they didn't have the supernatural light, pagans had what he called the natural light. They could use their own human brains and their own reason to look around and see there is right and wrong. And these pagans knew that there was right and wrong. They, they accepted that there was right and wrong. And they were imminently trying to figure out how to, how to be right and how to not be wrong. And Christianity came on the scene and gave us an answer. 
But he's saying now we live in a post-Christian world, which is more depraved than it was pre-Jesus. Pre-Christianity, we believed that there was a right and wrong, and we were trying to figure out how to make it right. Post-Christianity, we've gone to some weird idea that there is no objective right and wrong. And I would argue that um, that is a slap in the face to all the injustices that we have seen over the last couple years and, and in, our, in our country and in our world and everywhere. Like, if you really believe that there is no objective right and wrong, then why are we so deeply bothered by injustices that we see every single day in our world? We are bothered because there is objective right and wrong. So thought number one from last week is there is objective right and wrong. Sam Harris is an atheist thinker. He's a brilliant guy, and I just think he happens to be wrong, but he's a very smart man. And he said, he says, morality is, um, there is no God, there is no lawgiver. Morality is defined as our ultimate goal is maximum flourishing for the maximum amount of people for the maximum amount of time. And the ultimate bad is maximum uh, uh, suffering for the maximum amount of people for the maximum amount of time. And morality, it's not that there's a God or not, it's just that there's good and there's bad in terms of flourishing versus suffering, and we would rather be flourishing than suffering. That is morality. And Jordan Peterson responds, and he says he's not even particularly a Christian, but Jordan Peterson responds and says, um, what you're talking about when you say maximum flourishing for the maximum amount of people for the maximum amount of time versus maximum suffering for the maximum amount of people for the maximum amount of time, um, what you're defining is heaven and hell. And without even realizing you're doing it, you're stepping into Christian doctrine before you've even, and so he's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing, that's not what I'm doing. And he's like, no, you are. You're closer to Christianity than you realize you are. And, uh, and, so, and so there is objective right and wrong. Thought number two, there's a power behind that right and wrong. And in Christianity, we believe that is a God and that it is a good God. And three, we have broken the law and put ourselves at odds with the power behind the law. I wanna tell you something. We cannot invite people to church or invite them into Christianity or invite them into following Jesus without people first realizing I'm a sinner who needs a savior. When Jesus came and preached, we, we tend to read the Sermon on the Mount as if the Sermon on the Mount was like this, you're blessed if this, you're blessed if this, don't do this, do this, and we tend to read it like it's a, uh, Jesus is preaching about morality. But a lot of theologians say that the Sermon on the Mount was actually Jesus saying, you need a savior, you need a savior, you need a savior. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, if you even look at a woman, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I say, if you have hate in your heart, you've already murdered. Why is he saying that? Because he's trying to say, you think you're innocent, but you're not. You need a savior. And so all Christian thinking begins with impending doom. All Christian thinking begins with, uh-oh. You can't come to Christianity without, uh-oh. <laughs> you will never understand a Jesus, a God who comes to, to this earth and dies for you and is raised again. You will never understand that if you don't first understand, uh-oh. 
I'm in trouble, I need a savior, I need help. I'm not talking about people just being imperfect, right? People are just imperfect. I'm talking about, uh uh-oh, I have broken some supreme good law and somehow I need to be made right again and how can I be made right again? That's where we ended the message last week. Such an encouraging place to end it, right? Uh Uh-oh. But today we're gonna pick up with book number two from Mere Christianity where he says, what Christians believe. Book number two is called What Christians Believe. I wanna read a couple verses to you today. He doesn't have these in the book. He doesn't quote any scripture in the book, but I I wanna give you two verses. The first one is Romans 3. I'm gonna read Romans 3 to you. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I'm gonna read Romans 6 to you. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When it says the wages of sin is death, that doesn't mean that God is rewarding you with death. It doesn't mean that God is rewarding you. The wages, the the original language there means the thing that you have The thing that you have earned by sin, sin has given you this. Sin has given you death. Um, But the free gift of God, uh, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. In other words, death came from our sinning, but life life and eternal life is not earned. It is a free gift from Jesus. That's what we're gonna talk about today. All right, let me pray. God, we love you, we thank you. We wanna be Christians, we wanna follow you, we wanna know your word, we wanna live your word, we wanna be in right standing with you, Jesus. Help us to hear from you today, help us to learn in you and grow in you today. Help our roots to grow down deep in you today, Jesus. And we thank you so much that school's about to start, fall's about to start, pumpkin spice latte, in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Chapter number one is called Rival Conceptions of God. I'm gonna read a quote. I've been asked to tell you what Christians believe, and I'm gonna begin by telling you what one thing that Christians do not need to believe. If you're a Christian, you don't have to believe that all other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you are free to think that all these religions, even the strangest ones, have some, uh, contain some hint of the truth. That's so good. Lewis says that where Christianity and other religions disagree, I'm gonna stand with Christianity because I'm a Christian. But atheists reject the main point of all religion, which is uh, what C.S. Lewis says. There's two groups in the world. There's the majority who believe in gods or a god, and then there's the minority who do not believe in God, and they do not believe in gods. The majority can be divided even further It can be divided into two groups, pantheists and monotheists. Pantheists believe that God is beyond good and evil. There is not just one God, there are several gods, and good and evil is all just kind of up in the air. Like, um, it's all just how you view it. He says a pantheist might say, um, or we might say that uh, that, that a surgeon is good because he saves a man, he kills the cancer, or he saves a man's life because, because he, he cures him of cancer. But and a pantheist might say, well, the surgeon's actually bad because he's killing the cancer, right? So what he's saying here is that it's all just how you view it. It depends on what perspective you view it from. Pantheism is Buddhism, Hinduism, um, all different kinds of beliefs like that. 
And it's all just how you view it. If you, if you kind of follow Star Wars and you follow like that whole world, it's all this balance of good and evil, right? And it's, and it's well, I think that the Sith are bad. And then Anakin Skywalker is like, I think the Jedi are evil. It's like all just from what perspective you look. But in the Christian view, and in the Jewish view, and in the Muslim view, God, there is one God, and he is good. This God takes sides. He loves love, and he hates hatred. He is righteous. This God is a good God. Pantheism believes that God animates through the universe. In other words, God would not exist if the universe didn't exist. And Christianity believes that God made the universe as a painter makes a painting. The painter is not the painting, right? The painter doesn't cease to exist if the painting ceases to exist. But in pantheism, um, then the universe is God. It is God. It's part of God. It's who God is. And, and uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard someone say before, like, just ask God or the universe or whatever you call it. Have you ever heard people say that? That is a profoundly anti-Christian idea. God and the universe are not synonymous, period. God is not the universe. He's the creator of the universe. He exists whether this thing exists or not, right? Um, in pantheism, you say, well, if you could just see it from a different point of view, then you would see that this was also God. In Christians, Lewis, and I quote, says, Christians respond, don't talk damn nonsense. I love that. He says, God is, not, uh, God is not everything. God is good, God is not wrong, and wrong is not God, right? Uh, so pantheism believes that salvation is escaping from the world. And Christianity, I, I wanna tell you one belief that probably is gonna shock you today. Um, if your view of heaven is that one day you're gonna go to some spiritual place where you're gonna float around like a naked baby shooting arrows, right? You're gonna float around in some spiritual place that's called heaven, and I just can't wait until I'm in heaven to escape from all this nonsense. I gotta I got tell you that heaven and Christianity, um, Buddhism and Hinduism believe that nirvana is escaping from this place. Christianity believes that the God of all is gonna come back down to this place, fix all of it, and make a new heaven and a new earth. So you and I aren't gonna exist in some weird, ethereal environment. Guess what? We're gonna be embodied. We're gonna, we're gonna be embodied in a new glorified body and a new heaven and a new earth. And so God isn't trying to rid us of this world. He's trying to rid this world of evil and make it right again. All right, so this brings us to the end of chapter one, which is, if God is good and he made the world, why has it gone wrong? Have you ever heard this question before? If God is good, why is the universe so messed up? If God is good, why has the world gone wrong? And C.S. Lewis says, when I was an atheist, the world seemed so cruel and unjust. But the more I thought about it, how did I get this idea of cruel and unjust? What thing am I comparing this world to to say that it is cruel and unjust? In order to have justice, uh, or in order to have an idea that the world is unjust, I have to have true justice. In order to have an idea that the world feels meaningless, I have to have meaning. 
in order to have an idea that the world is dark, I have to have light. So listen to this quote. He says, thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Uh, consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. So good. Atheism's too simple. It's too simple. If God's good and he made the world, why is it bad? So there must not be a God. Where did you get the idea of good to begin with? And by the way, just side note, when we do that, when we say there either isn't a God or he's not good because the world is broken, what we're actually doing is we're setting ourselves up to be the judge that we are somehow more righteous than God himself is. And so now we get into chapter two of what Christians believe. He says, atheism is too simple, but here's another thing that's too simple. Watered down Christianity is also too simple. He said, uh, watered down Christianity, as he defines it, is saying there's a good God in heaven and everything is gonna be all right and everything's gonna be okay. Just stay on your spiritual journey and everything's gonna be okay. And he says, when we leave out sin, hell, the devil, and redemption, we're watering down Christianity, and these are just child's play. They're too simple. They don't help us understand the universe any better than, than uh, atheism does. Real things are not simple. Real things are not simple. Um, how many parents in here, I didn't ask this the, uh, the other services, but this is third service. So how many parents in here have already given your children the birds and the bees talk? Anybody in here? Okay. I am dreading. <laughs> I prayed that I would have two girls so that story, I mean, so that Kenzie would have to take care of it both times. But Lewis says, get this, Lewis says, when you explain to a child how, how uh, humans come onto this planet, it is not what you would have guessed, and most kids don't even accept it right away. They're like, no, it can't be true. It can't be true, no. Um, it's not what you would have guessed. It's totally, it's totally, what he says is that real things, as we mature and we come to understand real things, real things are often not as you would have guessed. It's often different. It's often um, odd or like, oh, you know, and so real things are complicated. Um, and we sometimes want God to be less complicated. We want God to be on a one-year-old level or a two-year-old level. If God was really good and he made all this, why didn't he make this more simple? And uh, I, so, story in Scout. Uh, story's five, Scout is two. And the other day I played a game with Scout in the car. I don't know why, I just thought it was fun. I said, Scout, is dad a boy or a girl? And she said, a boy. She's two years old. I said, is mom a boy or a girl? And she said, a boy. I was like, <laughs> okay. Uh, is Story a boy or a girl? A boy. Is Scout a boy or a girl? A boy. Is Gigi a boy or a girl? A boy. Is Poppy a boy or a girl? A boy. Is Lala a boy or a girl? A boy. Is Uncle Landon a boy or a girl? A girl. <laughs> and what I learned in that moment is that she doesn't know what boy and girl is, but she is clearly categorizing human beings. And she's categorizing that we all belong to one type of group and that Uncle Landon belongs to some other foreign entity. 
She is old enough and mature enough to understand that there are groups of people, but she doesn't understand what boy is and what girl is. <laughs> what Lewis is gonna say is that we sometimes want God to think on our level, but he's the source of all thought. So his thoughts are often in ways that we don't fully understand. So you could say, well, why didn't God make this world more simple? And it might be that this world is incredibly simple compared to God's mind but we're like the idiots who are like, what? <laughs> um, and so what he says here is we have to be prepared for Christianity to have that same odd twist as the birds and the bees talk. Oh, what, what, what? You know, like that's how that works or this is how this works? So here's where he, here's where he gets into this. What is the problem that we're facing? We live in a universe that contains much that is obviously bad and seems meaningless, but... We also have, in this universe, creatures such as our, ourselves who know that it's bad and that it seems meaningless. That's a weird tension, isn't it? If it, it, it feels bad and meaningless, but we also, as creatures, we know that it feels off. There's something about it that doesn't feel right. So it says there's two views to solve this problem of why do we feel like it's wrong? Why do we feel like it's broken? He says the Christian view is that God made this world good, but that it has gone wrong. It still, it still remains and retains a memory of what it ought to have been. In dualism, he says, is the belief that there are two equal independent powers who are fighting it out in our universe. There's a good power and a bad power, and they are fighting it out in our universe. They are at war in our universe. And that is why it feels like there are things that should be good, but there are things that are bad. But what he says in dualism is that both of these powers existed from the beginning, that they've always existed, that they'll exist forever, and that there's really not one that is good and one that is bad. It's that it all just depends on how you view it, right? This is honestly what Buddhism or, or Confucianism or Hinduism or whatever, it's, it's all just from, your, from whatever perspective you wanna look at it. Some things are good in some ways and bad in other ways. And it all just depends on how you look at it. But here's what he says. He says, badness is not a supreme power. Why is badness not a supreme power? Because badness depends on goodness to even exist. He said, badness can't even exist without goodness. Here's what he says. There are two reasons why people are cruel in this world. Number one is they're sadists. They get pleasure out of being cruel. Or the second one is that um, they're getting something out of it. They're getting money or power or safety. And he says, but pleasure, money, power, and safety are all good things in and of themselves. The badness comes along with how we get those things, right? And so money, power, pleasure, none of that's a bad thing, but how we gain those things can make it perverted or make it wrong. So what he says is that uh, goodness exists in and of itself, but badness can only exist as perverted goodness. There is no sense in saying that badness is a power in and of itself. Badness is only perverted goodness. I love, this is the actual quote. He says, goodness is itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. Goodness is itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. Even to be bad, you have to borrow or steal from goodness. That's why he says dualism makes no sense because they can't be co-equal powers. One of them is clearly subordinate to the other. He says, this is where Christianity gets us. 
There is an evil power at work in the world. There is an evil power. He is not on the same playing field as God. He is a fallen angel. He says the devil is a fallen angel. Evil is a parasite. Evil is not the original thing. It's the perversion of a good thing. It's not the original thing. It's the perversion of a good thing. Real Christianity, he says, gets a lot closer to dualism than you would think. We do believe that there is evil in the world. We do believe that there is an evil power at work in the world. But we do not believe that he is anywhere near as powerful or as mighty or as strong as God is. So dev the devil is a fallen angel, and he, is, and he is running loose in this world. So here's what it says. He says, um, Christianity believes that the devil was created, that he was good when he was created, but that he has gone wrong. Christianity does believe that there's a war, but it's a civil war. It's a, re it's a rebellion. We are living in the part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Here's the actual quote. Enemy-occupied territory that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. And, might, and we, you might say he's landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. We're living in enemy-occupied territory. That's what, the, that's what Christians believe about the universe. God made the universe and he made it good. But something has gone wrong with it. What has gone wrong with it? A rebellion, a revolt a perversion, a twist. The devil has rebelled against God, and we know through scripture that the Bible says that there was, a, there was a war in heaven, and a third of the angels fell, right? And they're on this earth, and so there, there's this evil, there, there is this evil thing at play. So now we get to chapter three. It's called the shocking alternative. Do you guys like to be shocked? You like to be spooked? Whoa, that's amazing. I hate movies where I know what's gonna happen, I like to be shocked. Here's what he says, the shocking alternative. Yes, an evil power has made himself for the present a prince of this world. Is that in accordance to God's will? Have you ever heard someone say, okay, so God's good, he made the world, but now there's evil, and the devil has revolted against him. If God made a creature who was able to be bad, is God actually good? If God's actually good, why did he create creatures who were capable of being Bad. Have you ever heard someone say that before? So the devil is, um, is a bad creature or a bad thing, but God made the devil. Does that mean that God made bad? And Lewis says, no, all badness is spoiled goodness. God did not make him bad. He made him good, and then he spoiled that goodness. But this is where we get into God giving his creatures free will. If it's God's plan that the world would go wrong, then is he really good? And if it isn't, it, why isn't he stopping it? And the solution here is, no, God created the universe with a will, but part of that will included free will beings also participating in the will that he has. How many parents do we have in the room? Wave at me if you're a parent. Okay, awesome. Uh, so you have children, and I have two children, and if I say to them, go clean your room, one of them gets up and goes and cleans the room, and the other one is named Story, okay? <laughs> so, so if I say, go clean your room, one of them gets up and goes and does it, and Story just kind of sits there and is like, ah, Scout will take care of it. Scout's the two-year-old, and she'll, she'll go clean. Um, 
any time that you make something voluntary, people aren't going to do it. Some people will, and some people won't do it. And God, for whatever reason, wanted to give us the, the free will. Now, why? Because even though free will makes evil possible, it's also the only thing that makes real love and real joy possible. I cannot have a real love relationship if I'm being forced to do that thing. So what God wants is, God is a good God and he's a God of love, but he wants free love and free expression of that love. Freedom, he wants you to freely worship him, right? He wants you to freely love him. He wants, he, that's the kind of relationship that he wants. And so, um, yes, God has made this world, and yes, it had the capacity to go wrong, but it was necessary in order for us to also have the capacity to love. It was necessary for us to also have the capacity to worship. It's necessary. Uh, he says, the better stuff something is made of, the better it will be when it goes right and the worse it will be when it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. That's what he says, and I disagree. I eat them and they taste amazing and they are very good or they're very bad, depending on how they're prepared, right? But he says, a cow cannot behave in a very bad way or a very good way. But a human can be very good or very bad. Why? Because the better stuff something is made of, the better it can be or the worse it can be. God has given us so much freedom and so much free will, but when we go good, we can be good, and when we go bad, man, we can go really bad. So listen to this. The moment you have a self at all, there's a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the human race. Some people think the fall of man had something to do with sex, but that is a mistake. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods. They could, set up their, uh, they could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come the long, terrible man, uh, history, story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. So, so powerful. A car was designed to run on gas or electric. Okay, if you're driving a Tesla, I hate you. But, um, <laughs> Ed, are you going to drive a Tesla? I have a feeling that you are on the path towards a Tesla. Like, Katie, be serious. Like, does he talk about it all the time? Like, I, I'm going to drive a Tesla. Oh, he's getting it next week. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Go sit in the back. Or tithe more. Just kidding. <laughs> I hate you. That's amazing. What color is it going to be? <laughs> You'll bring it to my house. Okay, wonderful. Okay, great. And I'll, 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 it'll be, I'll be driving around in a Tesla that's not mine, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, 
A car was made to run on gas, Edder. And we were made to run on God. That is the juice that is supposed to make us run. And when we live in a world where we're not running on God, we're trying to run on money, we're trying to run on politics, we're trying to run on power, we're trying to run on whatever. When we do that, we get slavery, we get prostitution, we get poverty, we get selfish ambition, we get, we get that's, that's what happens. The, the story of history, the story of history is people trying to run on stuff other than God. They're running on the wrong juice, is what Lewis says. And so what does God do? We're living in, we're living in enemy-occupied territory. There is a rebellion happening here. What does God do? First, he gives us a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. He gives us good dreams. He gives us prophetic stories about a God who's gonna come to earth, who's gonna die, who's gonna live again, and that somehow that's gonna give new life to men. And he selects one particular people and spends centuries hammering into their head the sword of God that he is. That's the Jews, and the Old Testament is the, is the account of that hammering process of him trying to reveal himself, of this is who I am, this is who I am. Then all of a sudden, there comes among the Jews a man who says he is God. Now, if a man came to a pantheist society and said, I am God, they would completely accept it because, yeah, you're, you're God, I'm God too, we're all God, the universe is God. But he came to the Jews after centuries of a hammering process of revealing who God is. God, is. God isn't the universe. God isn't everybody. God isn't, he's the creator. He's outside of the universe, and someone is now saying that God has entered the universe. God has now entered the, 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 the play. He's entered the painting. He's entered the thing. To a pantheist, they might not think anything of this, but to a Jew, after all of the years of hammering away uh, what kind of God he is, when he says that he has arrived on planet Earth, that is a shocking alternative. That is a shocking story. That is so shocking. A lot of people say, and then, and, and, and then get this, then he starts telling people that he has the power to forgive their sins. So a lot of people say that uh, God, Jesus never said he was God. No, that is not true. That is literally the thing he was put on the cross for, was blaspheming God. They, they put him on the cross saying that you're, you're carrying yourself and you're talking as if you're God. And that's what he went to the cross for. Well, Kyle, he never said, I am God. You know what he did say? He said, um, I, your sins are forgiven. I have forgiven your sins. To a Jewish society, that was exactly the same thing as saying, I am God. Exactly the same thing. I can forgive your sin that you do against me, but here's a man who's not just forgiving sins that were done directly to him. He's for, man, he's forgiving sin, your sins that you did to other people, right? If, if I step on your feet, or if I jam your feet or whatever, and you say you forgive me, that's one thing. But here comes Jesus who says, I forgive all of your sins. Jesus behaves as if all sin was a direct slap in his face, was a direct breaking of his law, and he says, I forgive it. So here's this man who comes to earth who claims he can forgive sins. He is God in flesh. And you might say, well, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher. 
but I don't accept him as God, to which I would say there is no great moral teacher Jesus. That Jesus doesn't exist. There is either a Jesus who is God or a crazy lunatic Middle Eastern man who is killed and is gone. The only Jesus who, those are the only two options. You do not have a good moral teacher Jesus. You just don't. Jesus said he was God, he died and he rose again. You either believe it and accept him as God or you reject him as a lunatic. Here we get into the last two chapters and this is where, man, this is where things get so exciting. So God has landed on enemy-occupied territory in human form. What did he come to do? Did he come to teach? Well, yeah, kind of, but even more than that, he came, uh, the story of Christianity is about his death and his resurrection. It's almost as if God came purely to die and to be raised again. And uh, so was he here to teach? No, he, he came for his his death, and his resurrection. Uh, Lewis says, you don't have to believe one particular theory of what happened on the cross and what happened in the resurrection. There's a bunch of different theories of atonement. One would be called the satisfaction theory. One's the penal substitution theory. One is Christus Victor. He, Lewis outlines the theory that he subscribes to, which is the, called the penitential theory. Now, he doesn't use this in the book, but that's what these theories are called. He says, you don't have to subscribe to a particular theory of what happened when Jesus died and rose again. Um, you just have to accept that he did die and rise again and that it has somehow set the world right again. He says, when you're hungry and you eat dinner, you have no clue about nutrients and vitamins and whatever. You just know that when you eat the food, it makes you feel better, right? And he says, Jesus is the solution, whether you understand what theory by which this is all happening or not, here is the formula. I love this right here. He says, this is what all Christians must believe. Christ was killed for us. He has washed out our sins, and by dying, he has wiped out sin itself. Let's, let, let me uh, yell for Greg to come up and play, play the keys underneath me, because it'll make this next part feel so much more spiritual. <laughs> Greg, help. Hi, dude. Are you getting a Tesla? No. Okay. <laughs> Edder, we're gonna legit have a talk about this later, so. Um, you have to believe that Christ was killed for us, that he has washed out our sins, and that by dying, he somehow wiped out sin itself. Listen to this. Man has gotten himself into a hole and we need help getting out. I love this quote. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. Listen to that, listen to that, listen to that. Fallen man is not an imperfect creature who needs improvement. Like, I need to put this on repeat. A lot of times we treat church like, oh, I'm just an imperfect person and I'm just doing my life improvement today. No, fallen man is not an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track, 
and getting ready to start living life over again from the right one, that is the only way out of this hole. You don't need improvement. You need surrender. That was one of my favorite claps. It's, it was like an engine revving up. It was like... <laughs> Getting out of the hole that we're in requires repentance. This is C.S. Lewis working out what happened on the cross. Listen to this. Only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he would not need it. So I need to repent, but the reason I need to repent is because I'm bad. But the worse I am, the harder it is, and, and the more incapable I am of repenting. And the person who is ultimately good, perfect, who can repent, is the one person who doesn't need to repent. I love this. Here we go. But supposing God became a man. Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. Then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us. But God can do, it, can do it only if he becomes a man. Our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we men share in God's dying. But we cannot share in God's dying unless God dies. And he cannot die except by being a man. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us, which he himself need not suffer at all. I need to repent, but because I'm bad, man, I can't repent. I can't turn around. I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm not capable, but Jesus doesn't need to repent. God doesn't need to repent, but, uh, but he's the only one who can repent. He's the only one who can turn this around. He's the only one who can get us out of this hole. Lewis says when you're in a hole, the only person who can get you out is a kind friend outside of the hole. And Jesus steps into the equation as the one person who can get us out of the hole that we're in. Lewis says when you're teaching a kid to write, you often will grab their hand and you'll write for them. In other words, you will form the letters that they are incapable of forming themselves. And when Jesus became a man, when God became a man in Jesus, and when he died and rose again, what he was doing for us was grabbing our hand and doing the repenting for us. He was paying the price for us, and he was bringing new life for us. The old life, the rebellious life, the, the tense life, the life that was in rebellion against God has died, and now a new life has begun. The one man who doesn't need it is the one man who is, is capable of doing it, and God, instead of just leaving us depraved and letting the war play out and letting the civil war happen, he steps down onto earth and he turns the whole thing for us. Yeah. 
The final chapter of this, what Christians believe, is the practical conclusion. So how do I get this life? How do I, C.S. Lewis says, you have to participate in Christ's death and resurrection. How do I participate in his death and resurrection? The early church talked about three things mainly. They talked about belief, about baptism, and about communion. They said, when we believe, we are saved on belief and belief alone. We participate in God's goodness. We participate in his salvation. We participate when we believe and when we put our faith in him. But Lewis says, the world that God created, God's not trying to get rid of the world. He's trying to make the world on earth as it is in heaven. And so baptism and communion become bodily acts by which we participate in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, Jesus, when, when he talks about uh, communion or when Paul talks about communion, he says, when we do communion, we are participating in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When we're baptized, we are participating. We're saying, my old life was crucified with Christ and the new life I have, I now live by Jesus. When we believe, when we're baptized, and when we take communion, these are three ways, practical ways, by which we participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We participate in Jesus turning this whole ship around. He, he, ends, he ends his chapter with this. He says, why did God come in disguise? Why didn't God come in all his glory? And he said, if you're a Christian, you believe that he is going to come in all his glory. That there will come a day where God doesn't come in disguise, but he comes in raging like in bold, the entire world will see it. The entire world, the Bible says, will kneel. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. When he comes in that final day, he's coming for the end. He says, when the playwright steps out on the stage, the play is over. And if God had not come in disguise, the play would have been over. He came in disguise to give us time to participate in his story so that when he steps out on stage and the show is over, we could have been a part of what God was doing. So good. So God is gonna come back. He's gonna come back in all his glory. He's gonna bring heaven back down to earth. Heaven and earth will be one new, one new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. He's going to set things right. But for the meantime, he's, he's, he's asking you and me to take part in a rebellion against the rebellion. He's asking you and me to choose a side. He's asking you and me, do you wanna be a part of the rebellion against God and his goodness or do you wanna be on the side of God and his goodness? The rightful king has landed. I wanna read one final quote. He says this, the Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. The Christian doesn't think that God will love us because we're good, but that he will make us good because he loves us. I wanna invite you today to be a part of that kind of life. Where you're not just an imperfect person in need of a spiritual journey. You're a rebel against God. You are a rebel against God. You need to lay down your arms. But when God brings you new life, you are now a friend of God. You are a child of God. You are a, you are a, you're, you're a servant. You, the life you now live, you live by Christ Jesus who died and rose again for you and for me. I wanna invite you to be a part of that kind of thing. You can't get there without confessing the sin that, that's in your life. 
you can't get there without realizing, man, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. But, but it's a free gift. It's this beautiful thing. It's like when I realize that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and when I realize that Jesus is that Savior, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. I want to pray over you. If you just bow your head and close your eyes. God, we thank you that you're helping us to grow our roots down deep into Jesus. We want to be people who believe your word. We believe this story of the gospel. We are a part of it. We believe in it. We, we live it out. We, ser- we serve you. We honor you. God, we don't want to be rebels against God, but we want to be friends of God, children of God. And we thank you that God was able, you came to earth to turn us around, to repent for us. And God, we want to be a part of that repentance. We want to take part in that. We want to share in your death that we might share in your resurrection. God, today, if, if there's anyone in this room, every head bowed, every eye closed, if there's anyone in this room who's never said yes to Jesus, you've never given your life to Jesus, or you said yes to him, but you had no clue what that meant, and today you want to give your life to Jesus all across this room, wherever you are, if you just lift your hand up real quick, just one, two, three, you can put your hand up. Awesome. Hands going up, hands going up, hands going up. Thank you so much. I want to pray a prayer. I want you to repeat a prayer after me. Say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've sinned against you, but I know that you're good. And I know that you died to cleanse my sin. Would you forgive me? Would you take my sin? Would you wash me clean? Would you help me to live every day of this new life in you? We love you. I worship you. I want to serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, come on, everyone said Amen, amen. Let's give a huge hand clap to anyone who prayed that prayer. I would love to end with a song, but we're a little over time, so I'm gonna hand it over to Edder, Tesla Edder over here, to close us out.